0: Father, we come to you today, we come to your word, seeking truth, seeking conviction, and seeking direction. So we ask, Lord, that our eyes would be opened and our ears would hear the good news of the gospel and whatever you might have for us to grow in, Lord, through this passage. May you illuminate that for us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. I remember exactly how I felt about 15 years ago this moment. It was earlier in the day, but 15 years ago when... 9-11 happened. Nobody knew when it was done, and so even at this hour, 11 o'clock, I was absolutely terrified. I was disgusted. I was terrified because there there was something that was very unique about 9-11. Most people have never witnessed a murder, but on 9-11, millions And millions and millions of Americans watched live as thousands of their fellow Americans and internationals as well were murdered in cold blood. And so it's something that shocks us, it's something that we can't forget. Because it's so unique. It's kind of one of those things like JFK. People say that when JFK was assassinated, they remember exactly where they were when that happened. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing. I was in a chess uh, room, a chess game room online, playing chess, and somebody said, uh, the news is covering that a plane just flew into the Twin Towers. I remember exactly where I was. I remember my, my shock. I remember my fear. And it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to despair and to lose hope in a world in which bloodshed is so common, where we're, we're kind of surrounded by it. It's everywhere. In 1991, two hikers in the Italian Alps found a 5,300-year-old human corpse that they came to name Otzi. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's an O with the little two things above it, Otsi the Iceman. And he was preserved in the ice and the dry mountain air since just prior to about 3000 BC. And so he is the oldest intact human corpse ever found. Forensic investigators were called in to investigate and to take a look at this corpse. And what they discovered is that given what he was wearing, given the the remnant of the clothing that he was wearing, it was sheepskin, they believed that he was probably a shepherd they also put him through a, a cat scan machine, and they discovered that uh, that he had died by being shot in the back with an arrow. So the evidence tells us that the oldest human corpse that we have ever found was not found resting in a peaceful grave with with signs of reverence and and respect and honor and so on and so forth, but that he was left sprawled out on a bleak mountainside where nobody found him for 5,300 years, where he was just shot in the back, he died, and he was forgotten for over 5,000 years. It's a distressing commentary on the origins of human civilization, and yet it shouldn't surprise us a whole lot. We're coming out of the century that will be remembered historically as the most gruesome and murder-filled century in world history. State and government violence, things such as war, things like revolution, ethnic cleansing, accounted for roughly 150 million deaths in the 20th century which far exceeds the number of people who were murdered by state violence in all of human history combined up to that point. And by the way, if you add all the children who were murdered by abortion in the 20th century, that number goes over 200 million. It's not even close to what the rest of history shows us, what's happened in the rest of history. This 20th century was the most gruesome, murdersome century in history. So whether it's the prehistoric shepherd or people in the Twin Towers or European Jews who were victims of genocide or children in the womb or the mother of a 13-year-old cheerleader who wants to eliminate her daughter's competition. Anybody remember that case? It seems safe to say that murder is everywhere. That it's far too common. And it's all an ominous reminder of a biblically foundational principle. And that is that the wage of sin is death. The wage of sin is death. If there were no sin, there would be no death. Before there was sin, there was no death. Death is the wage of sin. Today we're going to be looking At Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, we'll be continuing in our Genesis study. The name of this message is When Kingdoms Collide, and while the theme of murder and bitterness are kind of central to our passage, it ultimately isn't a passage that's about murder or bitterness, it's about God. It's about God, sin, and sacrifice. The central truth of this passage is that God not only cares that we worship, but that God cares how we worship and why we worship. As we come to our passage, we remember that God has driven Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. They sinned, and yet God showed them mercy and grace. He allowed them to live and he gave them far more than they deserved. He prevented them from coming back to the garden, to the tree of life, because if they ate from the tree of life, they would live forever and be eternally sentenced to being sinners, eternally separated from God. He provided clothes to cover their bodies, to cover their the sin that was giving them shame. And so now they're living outside of Eden and life for them has unquestionably become a lot more difficult than it was back in the garden. So we start with the first two verses, Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four, verses one and two say, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And we have no idea when this happened. We, we don't know how much time passes between the final verse of chapter 3 and the first verse of, of chapter 4. And so while we have to be careful about inserting our assumptions into the text you know it, this was written without chapter breaks and everything so they, they would have just read this straight through so there's kind of the assumption that this is immediate but we have to be careful about it's inserting our assumptions into the story but I think it's pretty safe to assume that it wasn't very long before Eve conceived maybe a couple years maybe she and Adam had some issues to work out after the fall I don't know, but it's probably less than that. It probably was not that long afterwards. God had ordained from the foundations of the earth that one of the purposes that Adam and Eve had for themselves, that humanity had, was to be fruitful and multiply. And this shows us that they were obedient to God in fulfilling that purpose. And given the context, given the the closeness in proximity to the consequences of sin, That God named against Eve in the previous chapter. It probably didn't take long for Eve to experience the full effect of sin and the consequences of sin on childbearing, as childbearing became a lot more painful because of sin. Nevertheless, there is an inherent sense of joy in this moment. This is a story that starts out on a peak, not in a valley. There's a sense of joy in the moment as children are a blessing from God. You'll remember that God had made a promise back in chapter 3 when he judged the sin of Adam and Eve. He promised that Eve would have an offspring. She would have an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. Now hold on again, we don't want to insert too many assumptions into the text, but I don't Think it's too far of a stretch to imagine that Adam and Eve maybe, possibly, perhaps even probably thought that their son, whom they would name Cain, would be that promised offspring. The name Cain sounds like the Hebrew word that means created or acquired. So, given what Eve says, and given the name that she gives to her son, It seems that she sees Cain as a gift from God. But the text isn't done. It also tells us, it goes on to tell us, that she also bore a son and named him Abel. Notice that it doesn't say that she conceived again and bore a son named Abel. The indication that some get from that is that it was a twin, and some people just say, you know, that's an argument from silence. We don't know. And that's the truth. We don't know. But maybe he was a twin. But given what we already know about Abel, or if you don't know about Abel, what we're about to learn about Abel, it's ironic that his name would mean vapor or breath. In fact, 38 times in the Old Testament, his name would be translated vanity. Vanity, as in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon talks about how ephemeral or how fleeting vanity is. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. The idea behind Abel's name is that he's like a vapor. He's like a breath. He's here one minute, and he's gone the next. He is like vanity, fleeting. Cain's name, therefore, reminds us that life is from God, that life is a gift from God, while Abel's name reminds us that our days are numbered. That one day Our days will come to an end. Now before we proceed, I want to say again that we have to be really careful about inserting assumptions into this story because one of the things about this story, one of the things that characterizes this story is that there are some details that are just omitted and our brains automatically want to fill in those gaps with assumptions. So we have to be careful about that. For example, we can't assume that Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's only children, We don't even know if they are the first. We don't even know if Cain is the first offspring. It doesn't say that Cain's the first offspring. All we know for sure is that they are the first offspring to be introduced, and that Cain is older than Abel. So we can and should probably safely assume that already at this point there are other children, whether that be before, you know, they came either before Cain and Abel or after Cain and Abel. There are other children in the family. And so as these two brothers grow into men, they assumed vocational responsibilities. They went to work. They had jobs. Abel keeps the sheep. Cain works the ground. Neither job is inherently better than the other. Both of these jobs are necessary for the well-being of not just the family, but society, the society that is beginning with their family. Both of these jobs are necessary for the benefit of providing food and nourishment for the family. One represents dominion over the animals. The other represents dominion over the earth. And so at this point, at this point in the story we're on a mountain point, we're we're at a mountain peak, We're, we're at a high point in the story. Things are normal. Things are progressing as we might expect or might hope. The first family is working together. They're making do with what they have. They're making the best of their situation Working is God's will for humanity. It was part of God's creation mandate. That's something that we've kind of gotten away from in Western culture a little bit, where we look forward to, uh, to working for the sake of retiring someday. But the purpose of working isn't to retire someday. The purpose of working, it, it's simply the place where God puts us to live and to, to glorify him to bless others, to to use our gifts for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. It's designed to give us a sense of purpose and fulfillment. And so Cain and Abel are both working. They've both got their responsibilities. And the purpose of these two verses that we start this chapter off with is simply to set the, uh, the stage for what was certainly the first murder and very likely the first human death. A tragic reminder that the wage of sin is death. And so we start off with everything looking like it's going well, but that doesn't last long. This passage is also, by the way, going to introduce one of the most prominent themes that we'll come across in the book of Genesis. And that is the disintegration and the dysfunction of the family unit the disintegration and the dysfunction of the family family unit. The family was supposed to be the foundation for a healthy and thriving society. And yet within just a few verses of the first sin, the family unit is fractured and dysfunctional. So we continue reading verses three to eight. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the heart of our passage today. This is where we find the the meat and the bones, so to speak. And once again, we kind of hit the proverbial fast-forward button. This isn't immediately after they're born, obviously. In the course of time could mean eventually, as in it came to pass, or it could mean that there was a designated time set aside for worship where the people were expected to come and present their offerings. We don't know. Either way, we're jumping ahead several years We're jumping ahead several years. Maybe Cain and Abel are young men at this point, but we know that they lived for several hundred years, and so it's entirely possible that they are 200 or so years old at this point. We just don't know. The text doesn't tell us. And when the text doesn't tell us, we have to be very careful, but we should also keep in mind that it's probably not an important question. What we do know is Is that Cain is married already? Look at verse 17. Cain is already married. Verse 17 says Cain knew his wife right after he gets exiled. So Cain is married at this point. To whom would he be married? Now, there's a question. People will say, well, there must have been other people. God must have had other people somewhere in the land. No, the most likely answer, the most logical answer, given what the book of Genesis tells us, is that it was a sister or maybe a niece. And I know that that sounds a bit sick and and twisted and, and kind of strange in our day and age, but that was God's plan for filling the earth in the beginning. And of course, the time did come when God prohibited incest, but in the dawn of civilization, that was God's plan. And so Cain and Abel come to present offerings unto the Lord. And each brings the fruit of his labor. Cain works the field, so he brings something from the field. Abel works the sheep, so he brings sheep. With that said, there is nothing wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with what Cain presents to God as an offering. God is not displeased with Cain's offering because it's from the ground. God ordains grain offerings in the second chapter of Leviticus. And that was all that Cain had to offer. That was from his vocation. So what else would he have to offer? He had something from the ground. God is okay with grain offerings. It also doesn't tell us that it wasn't the best grain offering that Cain could have brought. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but here's the point of that detail not being in the text. That detail is irrelevant, ultimately. See, this is another place where we are just so tempted to insert our assumptions into the story that we might miss the plot. Some assume that God rejected Cain's worship because God required a blood offering from an animal, Some assume that God rejected Cain's worship because Cain didn't bring the best he had to offer. And of course, that's possible. Maybe it's even likely, but it's not explicitly stated, so we have to be careful. So what does that leave us with? Is God just being arbitrary in rejecting Cain's offering, but not rejecting Abel's? Is he being arbitrary by accepting what Abel brings but not what Cain brings. No, he's not being arbitrary because God is sovereign and God has the sovereign right to decide what type of worship is pleasing to him and what type of worship isn't pleasing to him. So we need to look a little bit deeper. So what is the difference between the worship that God accepts and the worship that God rejects. Because one thing that this passage makes clear for us is that he does reject certain types of worship. And if we're wise, we want to know what the difference is. The heart of the person worshiping. The heart. It's as simple as that. The heart of the person worshiping. That's the difference between worship that God accepts And worship that God rejects. That is the only difference that God cares about. Is it a heart that is surrendered to doing things God's way, seeking to please Him, yielded to Him in obedience? Or is it a heart that wants to do things the individual's way? Is it a heart that seeks to fulfill their own desires and their own preferences? So there's a difference in the hearts of Cain and Abel here. Hebrews 11 sheds a lot of light on this for us. This is one of these places where the New Testament tells us how to interpret the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Okay, so time out. Who, who are the people of old? It's, well, the author's going to tell us. He's going to give us some names. But just to give you the answer up front, it's people from the Old Testament who had faith in God, who trusted in God's promises. So he continues, verses three and four. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. There are two words in that passage that get repeated over and over and over again. Faith and commended. So, what made Abel's sacrifice pleasing, and acceptable to God? Faith. Why was Abel's heart surrendered in obedience to God? Why is any heart surrendered in obedience to God? It was because Abel believed in God's promise to send an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, which Adam and Eve undoubtedly probably from day one, told their children about, perhaps with the expectation that Cain was that offspring. Whatever the case, Abel believed that God was going to do this. Abel trusted God, even though it didn't make a whole lot of sense, even though it's kind of ambiguous, even though he doesn't know how it's going to play out, he has faith in God. He trusts in God's promise. Who didn't? Trust in God's promise. Cain. Cain didn't believe it. Cain didn't present his offering with faith and obedience. So if we were to just boil this down to the bare bones, this passage down to the bare bones, the very least that this passage tells us is that we must never, ever approach worship casually or carelessly or feel like we have the right to worship God on our terms rather than on his, in the way that we're most comfortable with, but which he has expressed no desire for. That is ultimately self-worship, deciding I'm going to do things my way, and I'm just going to assume that God's pleased with it. No, God's word expressly tells us what pleases him. Faith pleases him. So this brings us to the first principle that we gather from our passage today. We've got three main principles. The first one is that God has the sovereign right to reject the worship of those who do not have faith in God's promised offspring. God has the sovereign right to reject the worship of those who do not have faith in God's promised offspring. And who is that promised offspring? It is Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not pleased by worship that is simply going through the motions. God is not pleased by worship that attempts to appease him without trying to please him. God will not receive worship on our own terms. He receives worship on his terms. And that is through faith in the promised offspring through faith in Christ Jesus alone, period, end of story. So how does Cain react? God rejects his worship. We don't know exactly how he knew that God rejected his worship, but he does. Maybe fire came down from heaven and consumed Abel's offering, but not Cain's. We don't know. But Cain knows that God doesn't accept his his offering. And this is where the plot thickens as we look at how he responds. Cain realizes that God is sovereign. Cain realizes that God cannot be bribed. God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be fooled by our outward actions. God cannot be worshiped in any way that Cain pleases. And the text tells us that his response to this realization, it's it's a moment of epiphany for him apparently, is to become very angry. Not just angry, he's very angry. And his face fell, which probably means he just had a nasty scowl on his face. He was mean mugging. Here's the truth though, it wouldn't have mattered if Cain had brought the best grain he had. It would not have mattered if Cain had brought a lamb or a sheep to be sacrificed or any type of animal hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 tells us that the blood of animals never really did take away the guilt of sin anyway abel came to present his offering with faith with an obedient heart seeking to please God believing in God's promise to redeem and restore all of creation while Cain came to God without obedience and without faith and Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God not just unlikely it's impossible it cannot be done As Samuel would say, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. To obey is the greater good in God's eyes. And Cain had no desire to obey God.